find you're listening to Thinking Off Piste, a podcast for adventurers. We share inspiring stories from professional mountaineers, skiers, boarders, bikers, climbers and hikers who have gone against the grain, abandoned their comfort zone and found success through their dare-to-be-different attitude. Thinking Off Piste is brought to you by Maybe Ski, a Whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucketless ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds, head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your lift pass. Today I'm talking with the adventure athlete Aaron Rolfe. The London-based photographer and video producer is the founder of the British Adventure Collective. Last month, Aaron ski toured the Hort route from Chamonix all the way to Zermatt in one self-propelled sleepless push, completing the journey in only 31 hours. So Aaron, have you always considered yourself to be an adventurer or at what stage in your life did you decide to pursue this path professionally? So for me, it was more of a progression from photography, um, which started as more commercial photography, then gradually moving into more outdoor photography. And then I've ended up sort of uh, just naturally doing more of my own expeditions and creating content of those. So it's sort of a a bit of a balancing act between the content and the adventure for me. Um, So yeah, a bit of both. And in terms of your own adventures, what's your preferred like sport of choice or activity good question um i'm very yeah pro i guess i pride myself in being quite multidisciplinary so yeah. um i think skiing in winter and then probably mountain biking um in summer but i like to keep it varied and, and yeah do as many different disciplines as i can yeah that's awesome and they're both both ones that involve the mountains which is awesome um i think for me it's definitely skiing i've been skiing since i was maybe about seven i did a few ski seasons in the french alps um, and then I qualified as an instructor in Canada a few years ago, but only recently I discovered, did I discover sort of like water sports. So I never did any beach activities. I went paddle boarding last summer and I was like, now I want to windsurf. Now I want to do like all these different ones. So I'm going to yeah. try and pursue those next. There's just, so, there's, as you say, there's just so many toys uh, out there to buy, isn't there? There's just an unlimited list of things to try. There's not enough time to do them all. I know. Um, at what age were you when you first started to ski? Ski, I learned to ski around, I think, age 21 or 22. Um, so, yeah, pretty pretty late in life. My f- family never went on uh, ski holidays, just coincidentally. We, we tended to do more summer trips. Yeah. Um, so I learned at university. Awesome. And then how come you spent this winter in the Alps? <laughs> Um, just was lucky to get away in sort of between lockdowns. Um, and yeah, we're sort of quite lucky. My uh, girlfriend has a, a place, their family have a place in around Chamonix area. Mm. So we sort of decided to make a move while obviously there wasn't much going on in the UK. Um, and we were able to, um, and then, yeah, just obviously living a relatively simple life, just lots of ski touring every day, but, um, you know, nothing was really open, but it was great to, yeah, to keep, keep yeah. us going. I'm so jealous. That's like the perfect location to spend lockdown. <laughs> yeah, we were really lucky to get out there. But due to COVID, there were no lifts open, were there? So can you like walk me through how you managed to explore the mountains and how creative you had to be with like planning your routes? Yeah, so I think it was pretty controversial at the start of the season. The French decided they didn't want to open any resorts, um, which is obviously the, I think French skiing is probably the biggest industry um, for all the Alpine countries. Um, so Swiss resorts were actually opening and carrying on, but the French decided not to. So any time you wanted to ski, it was going to be ski touring from that point onwards. So I've always been quite into my ski touring and I like the idea that it's kind of a 
a combination of exploration and kind of making your own path with the skiing element. Uh, so it kind of just forced you to yeah start looking at skiing in different areas and, and doing different things. That's so good. And this winter you embarked on an epic personal adventure called the Hort Route. You ski toured and part cycled from Chamonix to Zermatt in 31 hours, covering 120 kilometres with around an 8,000 metre ascent. And you achieved this entirely self-supported and without any sleep. What inspired you to take on this challenge? Um, so I actually did the Outro in sort of the standard format a few years back uh, with some friends. And, and we just love the trip. It's, it's such a great journey and we totally recommend anyone who gets the opportunity to go out there. Um, and then after that, I sort of had seen some ski mountaineers, sort of, you know, the pro ski mountaineers had managed to do it in, in one push. And there's something really attractive about the idea of a single, almost the simplicity of a single journey, you know, just setting off from Chamonix, knowing that you, you can't really stop properly <laughs> until you get all the way to Zermatt. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I think after a sort of season of lots of touring, because that was the only thing you could do, um, it felt like the, the right time to give it, give it a shot. Amazing. And I was going to ask you how you prepared for it, but I guess you had the whole season and the whole of lockdown in preparation for it anyway, didn't you? Yeah, I think that was definitely a, a big factor for me is probably more prepared for that trip than any other trip to date, um, just with so many opportunities to ski tour and so much training, um, just naturally, because that was all you could do. Um, and yeah, in terms of equipment, it, it gave me the whole season to sort of refine my kit and make sure I was totally happy with everything. Cool. And did you take many rest periods during that 31 hours? And if so, how long did you break for? Yeah, I tried to kind of break it into three, um, just mentally. I think it was a lot easier to see them as three sections. Um, so from Chamonix up to Latour was kind of a, a cycle just to start, a short cycle. And then there'd be the first section. Um, I kind of would break intermittently on the move, um, but, but largely I tried to sort of keep to these sections. And then when I did stop, I would have to refuel so much food. According to my uh, Garmin watch, it said I, I burnt 13 and a half thousand calories. So wow. the, the amount you had to eat, obviously, to keep going. I think endurance stuff like this is just an eating game, really. It's an excuse to eat as much <laughs> as you want. And what kind of things were you eating to keep your strength up? Um, bit of a mix. You, you've, I tend to struggle with drier foods when you're sort of pushing yourself hard. So stuff like pasta is obviously always a safe bet. And because it's not so dry, it's quite easy to eat. Um, so that was kind of a staple. But I, I tend to eat very ordinary food um, when I do endurance stuff. But I'm a big believer that calories are calories and it doesn't matter too much what it is you're eating as long as you can and want to eat it. Um, so yeah, sense. bit of big mix. Pringles are like my go-to. <laughs> Yeah. We spoke to this um, this great girl uh, called Jasmine who sailed across the Atlantic and um, she was saying how she brought ration packs with her which had like these meals in them um, but she hated them and she was like this isn't what I want what I want is chocolate so she also brought yeah. loads of chocolate and she just like sacked off her ration packs which was really funny but at the end of the day it's like it's what you want and what you crave in that moment just like have what you fancy because you've got a long leg like journey ahead of you don't you? Yeah, and it really doesn't matter. It's just energy at the end of the day. As long as it's calories, then you're going to keep moving forward. <laughs> yeah, and did you have to like carry all of that on your person or were you stopping off and restocking anywhere along the route? Yeah, I guess that's just kind of the part of the sections. Uh, the sort of three stages were defined by when I could refuel. Um, and I had some support from great friend Katie and Mark, who took a lot of images, uh, did the photography as well. So they, uh, yeah, met me sort of twice along the route. 
um, and would give me, yeah, try and restock me, make, make me eat as much as possible and, and kind of sort me out, um, which is great. I mean, the support just means in that kind of role just means you can concentrate on just trying to keep him moving and, and all the rest of it. They kind of look after a lot of the things for you. Yeah, that's really good. And even though you're entirely alone, you also, every time you pit stop, it's, a, it's kind of third party support, which is quite motivating. It keeps you driving. It definitely helps me. Yeah. With knowing, particularly like the night after the night or through the night, with knowing that I was going to meet the guys early in the morning to arrive to them. And when you've spent an entire night alone, just in the mountains, yeah. it's quite nice to see some smiling faces when you arrive. That's crazy. Were there any points that you were scared something might happen to you, especially in the night? Um, a little, I wouldn't say scared, but certainly I was apprehensive. And there's one section that's quite sort of a steep, uh, icy descent. And in the Alps that high at nighttime, it, it does end up becoming quite hard packed snow and, and really firm, sort of quite serious. Um, but there's basically, there was one stage where I'd wrecked the route and I knew what was sort of to expect. And then we actually set off a sort of triggered a, a wet slab, small avalanche, um, oh my a few God. weeks prior. Yeah. So coming back to the same place, which was actually fine because of the night time. So it's the safest place, the time you could be at that, you know, that place. Um, but I was just very aware that there was a lot of avalanche debris and it was it's about 40 degree slope at nighttime. Um, Sounds really so, scary. <laughs> so that was quite yeah. full on. But after that, it was, I kind of knew that I'd got past that point. So it felt like it was a lot more sort of plain sailing. Thereafter. Yeah. What were you thinking about in moments like that as you were walking through it all alone and in the pitch black, I imagine? Yeah, yeah, it was very dark. You're certainly aware of the sort of loneliness of the situation. Um, you feel that was a particularly isolated place. So you're certainly aware that if anything did go wrong, it's not going to be an easy, um, you know, fix or rescue or anything. There's no one around to, to help you. But I think you just try and keep on the task ahead. You know, just think, right, okay, what's the next thing I need to do? Be it make these few turns down and get a little bit lower or get to this next section. You know, just break it down, I think. And I could... I guess because it was through lockdown, did they have peace lights on or was the mountain rescue still as prevalent as it perhaps would be in normal season time? Do you know? So everything, the resorts were all closed in Verbier at that time of year. So it was all pretty, pretty locked up. Um, Mountain rescue, I guess, would have still been able to come, but in good weather if everything was fine. Um, But it certainly doesn't feel like that when you're kind of out alone. (laughs) And I'm sure it would have taken quite some time. Yeah. And how much communication were you keeping? Like how how much were you speaking to people at home? Were you stopping every now and then to update them? Yeah, I was actually, I said I'd uh, do some Instagram stories and uh, try and keep some, kind of take people along the journey a little bit, which is kind of funny. It gave gave me a little distraction from the endurance side and something to do other than just excuse one foot in front of the other. Um, but then I also had a live tracker um, on, on my person from GPS. So it's nice that people could keep keep an eye. Although that is reliant on you having phone signal because it links with your phone to then send the signal. So I think some people were like, he's not moved yet. <laughs> Quite a long time. You've dropped off the grid. <laughs> oh, that's actually really scary. Yeah. It's like still point. Um, yeah. And then that's reliant on your phone working. And obviously in cold weather, um, battery life and stuff can be affected really quickly did you have any issues with that yeah i didn't actually because i took um a really chunky battery pack um but it was something i was very aware of yeah you know having i was also actually using largely using fat map which is like a a mapping tool which is great for off-piste skiing um 
and in order to do that, obviously, you need to make sure you've got battery at all times. Um, yeah. I did have a paper backup map just in case. Um, but yeah, it was pretty important to make sure I had power all the time. Cool. And where do you stand with like fitness trackers? I think you mentioned you had one of the, the Gantt watches. Uh, I've got Garmin watch, yeah. Oh, Garmin watch, that's it. Um, I was watching this Joe Rogan podcast recently with a girl called Emily Harrington, who's a free climber. And mm-hmm. she were, they were talking about the idea of sort of uh, measuring your heart rate to check recovery and they were saying that well Joe Rogan was saying that he hates the idea of like oh no he loves the idea um, of monitoring it so that he can know exactly like if he's okay if it's okay to keep going um, and Emily was saying the complete opposite she was saying she hates being data driven and you need to be more intuitive than that um, and I've been having this conversation with my friends quite a lot recently because I love tracking and monitoring uh-huh. but what I do is just like quite casual exercise it's not um, professional like athletic workouts well Mm -hmm. what was your verdict on like having one yeah I've actually always been pretty old school uh, in that sense and rarely used uh, any heart rate monitors or anything like that at all Uh, up until this trip I've managed to get a Garmin watch which I've actually really enjoyed Um, yeah I think it has its uses I think you can become data obsessed and you literally yeah. just fixate and actually you're losing out on the experience of what's around you and how you feel and your connection with what you're doing. And you're just thinking, right, I've got 3K to this next bit. I've got to do this. But one thing I find really useful is just monitoring my heart rate, making sure it wasn't going what I kind of think is a threshold that's too high. Um, yeah. where I'd be just working sort of unsustainably. So I tried to keep my heart rate sort of between 120 and 130. Um, as much as I could and then there was a point where I was definitely working just way too hard and looked at my watch it was like 165 or something yeah. and I was like I need to slow down I cannot keep this up for 31 yeah. hours now's a good time to have a quick break <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah. um so you does that insinuate that there are definitely parts of the journey that were a lot harder than others in terms of how physically challenging they were yeah for sure so at the start I sort of expected because I spent a lot of time in the Chamonix area I kind of knew what to expect but um there was some fresh snowfall just a, a day or two before and I thought it would be really well tracked in and I'd just be following a crazy skin track and then I, <laughs> I actually caught up the people who were c- cutting the skin track so leading through the snow <laughs> oh did you overtake um, them <laughs> yeah so that when they weren't moving obviously because it was pretty snowy and they weren't moving quite quick enough to just sit in behind so yeah I had to I had to overtake and then it was about it must have been sort of well over knee deep of snow um which was not the plan there's <laughs> <laughs> a lot more effort to, to tour in you know th- two three foot of snow than it is in, in oh my god in, that's so true you to try and fly, like float on top of it if you can, but no, yeah. they're just wading. <laughs> it's just wading for sure. But eventually, it did clear up, and I managed to pick up on the normal, the rest of the skiing track. And also, in the descent was actually just really nice snow and just enjoyable skiing, um, yeah. which is hard to imagine doing like such a big journey and still getting really good, amazing powder. I didn't sort yeah. of see, see that coming. That's so good, and I guess your body wasn't really having that much time to recover going through this because you did it completely sleepless. Uh, how did you cope with the the sleep deprivation? Yeah, I think you can, although you can't train sleep deprivation, you don't technically get better at it in any way. I think it's impossible to sort of train the body, but you can get used to sort of how to deal with it. Yeah, um, okay. I think the key for me was to get the timings that I was only out for one one big night. And then you hit this what I would call you sort of the graveyard shift between <laughs> two, two and five a.m. when everything in your body is just wants to stop and just wants to sleep. 
Um, and if you know that's coming, you're sort of anticipating um, it's going to come. And then by the time that's gone, um, you sort of, the sun's starting to come up and you realise you get a sort of second lease of life. Um, Your second wind. Yeah, or yeah. like fifth wind at this point. I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Did that have like, uh, did that affect your ability to navigate? It didn't seem to, um, but I'm sure I was probably less efficient and less uh, organised with it than I would have been. You definitely become yeah less competent when you're that sleep deprived. And I think the night, obviously it's the, the darkness as well, just everything's harder to navigate at night. Um, but d- didn't go too far off route. So. Didn't land yourself in any trouble? No, I didn't fall in any giant crevasses this time <laughs> oh that would be so savage and then the signal gps drops off yeah. that'd be a nightmare and you did this without any lifts as well did you take your skis off and climb or were you traversing the whole way yeah and there's a lot of uh, you saw quite regular boot packs um i guess maybe four or five times um quite often the coals so you know the, the low point in the valleys would would culminate into one little boot pack at the end okay. so you just just get a short section of say 50 or 100 meters ascent um with skis on the back but sometimes it's quite a nice um sort of rest after you um you know you've been skiing and the set movement in a set way having yeah. a bit of change of muscle group can be nice i guess it breaks it up as well for you doesn't it <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. In fact, the picture behind me is um, the oh, end. Yeah. Of one of those <laughs> That's a great so, shot. <laughs> so the weather looked really nice in that. Mm. How were the conditions whilst you're out? Yeah, really good. So I was, that was one thing I was very sort of fixed on that I wasn't going to go out if the conditions went yeah, anything except perfect, really. Yeah. Um, and there was some chance of some snow showers in the night, but they never came. So. I was pretty lucky. Um, it was perfect high pressure for the whole two days. Just did just mean it was really cold at night and then very hot in the day. Um, yeah, fair enough. Better that than, than you know, challenging conditions. So. Mm. And I guess with the weather in those kind of juxtapositions or like those contrasts, the equipment and the kit you're wearing was pretty pervadent to getting you through. Were there any specific like brands or anything that you decided to wear that kind of were perfect for the job yeah for me I wanted to kind of make sure I had the really the best um, shells I could that's kind of a key so the Arc'teryx um, kit that I was wearing is perfect uh, Gore-Tex Pro Shell you just know that's going to withhold you know withstand so much um, I think a lot of the guys who well I think everyone who's done the single day hopefully all wear like like receipts and go full schemo um so i was probably the anonymous uh, <laughs> the exception there sorry of wearing quite ordinary ski clothes but it was just nice to have that peace of mind that i had a big down jacket if i needed it i had a good shell and i knew that even if it got really cold I'd, I'd be okay yeah awesome i guess the other thing from weather would be the altitude because you would you're on quite like a high altitude traverse how did your body cope with the difference yeah good, good point yeah i mean uh, most of the route is you know, between two and a half and three and a half thousand meters. Um, Which is so insane. Takes yeah. its toll. Um, initially, the start, sort of the first third was felt okay. Um, but I definitely started to feel it. I think particularly the last high point when your body's most fatigued, you know, when you're most exhausted. Um, I definitely started to feel a little bit dizzy. Which oh, I no. think was the attitude. Yeah. <laughs> um, but at this point, I could kind of see, you know, I could see the end or see what was the last uphill uh, finished and then it, it's basically downhill to Zermatt so kind of just pushed through and it was all right 
so nice that it's a complete downhill glide just straight into the finish line yeah yeah it's about 15 kilometers all the way down to Zermatt it takes a while but it's just nice not to be going uphill (laughs) yeah I remember talking to Emily and she came on the podcast about her when she crossed the 282 Marais and she it wasn't altitude but I think she was talking about sleep deprivation and hallucinating from sleep deprivation and seeing like dragons and stuff which sounded hilarious um I'm guessing you didn't see any dragons on this I didn't this time um, but I have had my share of uh, yeah, hallucinations oh. over sleep deprivation. You see the weirdest stuff. Your your mind knows that it's not real, so you're not losing yeah. it. You're still <laughs> seeing stuff. You're like, I can see a dragon, but I know that's not a dragon. Dragons aren't real. <laughs> on what of your adventures did that happen? Um, it was actually with Emily. Um, oh, really? On Itera, it was really bad, which is like a World Series adventure race that we did in Wales. It's six days back to back and... We just, like tactically we just messed up the whole race we just <laughs> we, we it was our first one and we went way too hard didn't be like didn't get enough sleep in and just tried to power through for the six days so we i think we slept something like six hours max in six days oh it was, my god over six days as well that's crazy it was brutal. i remember cycling following a land rover um <laughs> just behind a land rover and seeing the lights at, at night because it usually happens at night when you get and then just it all starting to move i was like <laughs> Not good. Sounds really trippy. Yeah, it was very strange. That's funny. Um, Yeah. So this descent into Zermatt then, did you have anyone waiting for you at like the finish line as it were? Yeah. So Katie and Mark had had driven around from the previous uh, point to meet meet me. Uh, Mark actually did the last section with me, um, which was nice, which is, yeah, which is great because at that point, obviously I was probably most sort of fatigued and exposed to doing something stupid um, yeah I feel a bit broken <laughs> yeah so he, he came with me for the last sort of 2,000 meters ascent and 30k um, which was great and took some more pictures like the one behind yeah <laughs> um, and also just to, to know that someone was with you um, was kind of a nice peace of mind for the last section yeah and it kind of changes the dynamic of it as well it becomes less of just a challenge and more of like a bit of a joint adventure so yeah nice. yeah I think he well, I mean he definitely shared the adventure with me because he was uh, like at different points <laughs> both came along and they didn't really sleep much either so yeah <laughs> I think it was almost as much work from on their part than it was mine that's cool have you done that with some of your other colleagues like in in return on any of their missions I did you join yeah. Emily on her Monroe trip or not yeah you I, I went to yeah. I spent a good good few weeks up in Scotland uh, joining Emily which was nice and it was she was out for so long it was four months so it was quite easy to find a time <laughs> to join her yeah. you know she's going to be out there somewhere just climbing hills <laughs> go find her yeah yeah um and what did you guys all do when you once you'd like completed the mission um just I actually had a beer in, in the town center um just yeah, just near the church and just relaxed a bit and and then gradually made our way back to Chamonix. And then the following day, we uh, got some friends together and yeah, had a little had a little barbecue and celebration, which is nice. Sounds amazing. And loads of sleep, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a fair bit. I think I, I somehow managed to dodge feeling too tired. I think because I skipped the entire night and then the following night I went to bed at quite a normal time. Yeah. It almost just felt like quite normal afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Cool. It's like when you do um, those long haul flights, but if you time it right, then actually you, you feel okay. fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the jet so lag right. doesn't ruin you. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to take some time to talk a bit about your other achievements as well, because not only are you an adventure athlete, but you're also a freelance photographer, which you mentioned earlier, a film producer and the founder of the British Adventure Collective. 
So you're juggling loads of balls. Um, can you tell me a bit about your photography and film work? I saw your impressive adventure photography portfolio, um, which is everything from sort of ski shots to surfing and camping. Do you have a, what, what's your favorite content to capture? Oh, yeah, good question. I think I do like the variety of it all. Um, there's the one sport. I mean, anything with water has always looks visually great to me. If you can capture that moment where you've got spray or some, yeah. something and snow can do the same. Um, so I'd probably lean to those and anything in the high mountains. Um, but yeah, so we just ended up creating more and more content, which was just born out of the passion of, you know, the outdoors and doing our own things. And then when I realized, you know, I could probably turn it into a career um, where I used to, used to work in marketing for a ski travel company. So there was kind of an element of content creation and, and understanding that part with social media content and all the rest of it. And then, yeah, just managed to sort of convert my career into freelance and, and then go down the adventure route. Epic. So good. Um, can you tell me some of the people you've collaborated with or brands that you've worked on in the past? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I would do a fair bit of work for Arcteryx. Um, I'm also an ambassador with Arcteryx as well. Um, and recently I joined the POC team, uh, which is great. And then a lot of the brands, yeah, it's a big mix um, because I, I think I'm quite fortunate that I'm not just into the one sport or the one discipline. Yeah. And as such, you can kind of mix up different brands. And so it gives you, in doing so, it gives you a much like, larger pool of brands to work with. Um, but yeah, lots of them are on, on the screen as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, across, across the to top. Yeah. Amazing. I guess they quite like eclectic portfolio. Do you have a favourite project? Ooh, um, the project to, to so Emily's uh, sort of, yeah, the film of Emily's Monroe trip was was an awesome project to be a part of. Um, that's definitely, yeah, one of our, I think, our best outputs of the, the film that we put together. Um, and we're actually working on, at the moment, a cycling film uh, up the UK as well, which we started at the end of last year and we're resuming in a week's time as exciting. well. So it's quite exciting. Um, did you film the production for Emily's Project 282? Was that you or? Yeah. Yeah. So Excellent. I was the producer, so I didn't actually do the filming, but it's kind of tied the project together, as it were. And that's won awards and it was aired at a film festival, I believe. Yeah. Which is we managed, super exciting. So, yeah. We, we were pretty pleased to get in. I think we've got about 10 different outdoor festivals, um, which is obviously like that's the people you want to be in front of, you know, the people who are really into their adventures and yeah. into their outdoors. That's so cool. So The Collective is a collaboration of UK athletes who explore, you share stories of adventure and inspire others to get outdoors too. Um, and through Emily, I know a bit about what you guys do, but can you elaborate on a bit more of your work as a, mm -hmm. as a, as a group? Yeah, so originally, I guess I created it to uh, showcase the kind of amazing spaces that the UK has to offer. I felt, um, I feel like, I suppose generally there's very much a culture of everyone in the UK loves to leave the UK and we're, we're sort of a holiday cult like nation, aren't we? <laughs> so <laughs> you can't so possibly true. spend your time in our islands. You have to go abroad. Um, and it just felt like a waste. I felt like there's really um, so many spaces out there that people just didn't understand were in the UK and how amazing they can be. So it was kind of born out of showing those off and, and making Brits realise that their own country is actually not half as bad as maybe they think it is. Yeah, it's actually, it's incredible how accessible and easy, well, I say that and it's obviously COVID at the moment, so it's not, but how easy it is to get to places you don't even realise that are on your doorstep already. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, I think COVID, COVID probably taught people that as well a little bit because there was obviously a stay 
stay local message, which is very important. Um, but I think people were exploring regions that they never sort of looked twice at and suddenly mm-hmm. they found these little spots they wouldn't have found otherwise. Yeah. And because of COVID, I've I've literally explored every inch of the parks in my local area and around the local area. Yeah. And I've actually loved doing that. Um, there's always like this desire when you go on holiday to want to try somewhere that's like really far away or somewhere new, like maybe go to Canada for their mountains or you go to Thailand for like the beaches or the sunsets. But in reality, I think what we've learned through this experience is just actually you have all these things in the UK um, that are worth seeing. Yeah. Totally. Uh, so Emily's an impressive climber. You're a really talented skier and diverse across other sports. What other sort of adventure disciplines do your colleagues on the collective possess? Yeah, so Ed's uh, one of our sort of uh, trusted partners. He's always involved in loads of our trips. He's a really good um, sort of climb, rock climber. Climber. Um, he, we did the Matterhorn a couple of years back and he sort of led a lot of that. Um, certainly like such a reliable guy to have in serious alpine terrain just knows his way around all the rope work and all that side of things um, and then we've got Annabelle who's who's yeah really great cyclist trying to push Annabelle a lot more she's very capable of um, really pushing the boundaries of, of distance and she's getting stuck into some really big rides it's awesome excellent what what is the Matterhorn can you elaborate on that one because I'm not sure that one is so the peak in the Alps, um, which, yeah, it's actually the Toblerone peak. Yeah, um, that's amazing. <laughs> it's probably the easiest way of describing it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I can't so, believe I didn't know the name of that. That's awesome. Yeah, Iconic yeah. Mountain is just such a perfect triangle shape. Yeah, so. cool. And you offer others the chance to experience the outdoors through intensive adventure weekends down at the Lake District. Can you walk me through what you offer here? Yeah, so originally we were offering uh, just like a taster weekend, which is like a little bit of every activity, uh, just to give people the opportunity to try these things. It, it felt a little bit like to, to us that people stop doing uh, fun activities after they leave uni or school kind of thing. And why not? Why shouldn't people have an opportunity in a kind of fun adult setting to enjoy some adventures in a very you know, approachable way that isn't too intimidating? Um, so we decided to put these weekends together and we're not actually running them this year just because of COVID um, but we've actually got some more sort of specialist weekends that are coming through um, which yeah well, there'll be more on the website soon um, which are going to have their own sort of unique twists so one will be a paddleboard weekend another one will be like a cycle and whiskey tour I was, more inter- I was yeah. interested in the paddleboard one but cycling and whiskey oh, okay. sounds great <laughs> yeah yeah, so we've got some specific trips which will be kind of spread over more of the UK than just the Lake District as well. Yeah, um, and obviously you're not open this summer for because of COVID, I imagine that's the reason. Yeah, that's it. And we, we sort of envisage the lakes is going to be uh, hectic this summer when you are allowed to travel a bit more. Um, so maybe a little bit kind of we don't want to add to more tourist traffic in a very busy period. Um, so maybe head to the quieter spots rather than the lakes this time. Yeah, that's true. And how can people find out about you guys? What's your website? Yeah, so just get on to um, BritishAdventureCollective.com um, and there's loads of sort of write-ups of our adventures or, yeah, there's plenty of inspirational imagery, hopefully, there for people to get get excited about adventuring in the UK. I read about some of your other ski um, adventures you've been on. Do you have a sort of a favourite from your adventure CV or like your favourite trip so far? <sighs> Yeah, I think Kyrgyzstan probably stands out. 
Um, it's a, such a cool country in Central Asia. They call it the sort of the Switzerland of Asia. Um, so it's just super mountainous, uh, but obviously in a, in a really remote, uh, totally different part of the world. Um, and they've got peaks up to 7,000 meters. Um, amazing skiing. You can stay in yurts and and ski from the yurt and tour That's out awesome. there. Yeah. <laughs> How long yeah, were you out there for? Uh, three weeks last time. Um, I'm actually due to go out again uh, for some mountaineering in September. Um, we've lined ourselves up a first ascent if we can get out there with COVID and stuff. It was meant to be last year, but it's been postponed. So really excited to get back. Mm. And um, are you going to be are you going to be shooting out there or doing an, a big adventure or is that like a holiday trip? Uh, good question. I guess there's a, a, a grey area between what is a holiday trip and a shoot. Wow. It, is, it, is, it is paid work, um, but it is also something I would have done for free, <laughs> probably. Yeah, so we did it originally. The, the route was planned purely from passion, but we've managed to get some good sponsors in. So the ideal scenario. Good. And do you have any other projects in the pipeline? Um, yeah, I've actually been looking, going back to that Central Asia kind of area again, I've, I've been looking at... Um, there's an, a, a sort of award called the Snow Leopard Award, and it's the climbing the seven, high, sorry, the five highest peaks, which are over 7,000 meters in uh, what was the Soviet Union. Um, so they're all in really remote parts of what was the yeah, Soviet Union, so in kind of uh, Kokosan and, and Tajikistan, that kind of area. Um, so it's not, it's going to take time to prepare for, but that's kind of my bucket list goal at this stage. Sounds very, very scenic and gorgeous. How yeah. spread out are they? They're reasonably close together um, within, you know, a thousand kilometres type of way. Russia is obviously so large that <laughs> there's a bit of distance. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, they just look like in incredible mountains and I'm quite keen to push into the higher altitudes uh, in the next sort of few years, I think. Amazing. I wonder how long it will take you to go across all of them. Is that something you've like scoped yet? Yeah, yeah. so the, the, the idea would be that maybe we could try and do them in a one in a one big trip but obviously Another. yeah it's a big road trip isn't it <laughs> but the yeah doing multiple seven thousanders in one trip is a lot to sort of go wrong in terms of conditions and waiting and takes time but I guess once you're acclimatized to that height then at least the next one might be easier yeah I was going to ask if there's anything else in your bucket list you haven't ticked off yet but I think you just answered that one I guess, yeah <laughs> that would be the one yeah. And is there anything you'd like to plug or give a shout out to before we wrap up? Um, yeah, probably just thanks to Katie and Mark, particularly, who supported on the Hope Route uh, project. Fantastic. Aaron, you've been awesome to chat with. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Anytime. No problem. Thinking of Peace is brought to you by Maybe Ski, a Whistler based adventure ski company creating bucketless ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds, head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your lift pass.